All right, thanks. Turn with me now to Ephesians chapter four. And I'm not gonna say, and then keep going like I did last week. Stay there in Ephesians chapter four because we are hitting a new section in Ephesians four. And we're simply calling it walk in. And this whole section, Ephesians four and chapter five, are this, is this idea of walking in what the scripture now speaks to us in these two chapters. And we're, this idea of walking comes straight out of the text. So I didn't make this up. This is just a repeated expression in the text. You'll notice if you're there in Ephesians 4 that verse 1 says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. And then if you drop down to verse 17, it says walk, but no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. If you go into chapter five, it says in verse one, walk in love. And then in verse eight, it says, walk as children of light. And then in verse 15, be careful how you walk. So we're simply calling it walk in because that is the repeated expression in the next two chapters about why he's writing this, that we would walk in a particular way. And and I'm sure you understand he's not teaching us a stride or a pace, not a literal physical walk, but a walk as he is saying, there's a manner of living by which we should live as followers of Jesus. That's why it's called a Christian walk. It's a manner of life that reflects Christ. And he begins the chapter Chapter four, by saying, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner of the calling with which you have been called. So can I summarize this very briefly? He's saying this, everything I've written in chapter one, chapter two, and chapter three now has direct implication in the manner in which you live, you think, You relate, you act, you react. That's the manner of living. But it's all dependent on what he laid in chapter one, two, and three. So chapters four and five are what you and I might think as command heavy. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. I wonder if you noticed that they were absent in chapter one, two, and three. It was a foundation of who we are in Christ that now he gets to what you and I might say where the rubber meets the road. Where we get to application into daily life. But his point is this in verse one, that we are to walk, we're to live in a manner that is consistent with our calling. And our calling, chapters one, two, and three. So without attempting to repeat six months, seven months of teaching. Let me run us through real quickly. When he says, walk consistent with your calling, he's saying this. In our calling, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So if you were here at the beginning of the year, you may remember this word we made up, car fish. Chosen, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, informed, sealed heirs. I hope that some of you went, wow, I actually did remember that. I didn't think I would, but I did remember. Chosen, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, informed, sealed heirs. Carfish, that that is how we have been blessed in Christ. That's part of our calling. So you follow what he's saying? If you've been blessed like that, then 
live like that. Chapter two was, we were dead, but now we're alive in Christ. So live like people who are alive in Christ, not like people who are dead in sin. That's what he's saying. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Chapter three, we were made ministers of a revealed mystery. We're to act in accordance to our calling and we are ministers. Let me keep this real. Here's what I've discovered in over 30 years of being a pastor. You expect because I'm a minister that I should live differently than you. You hold me to a higher standard, yes? Yeah, see, you do. Uh, uh, I have lots of examples of which I'm not going to give any right now, but there's been some very funny moments where people are going, yeah, but you're the pastor. Okay, so what did chapter three say? You're the pastor. Welcome to my world. (laughs) So all that stuff, you think, he shouldn't do that. Ah, what about you? Or he should do that. What about you? Yeah, but you get paid for it. I agree, you're good for nothing. I do. But that doesn't call me to a different standard. What calls me to the standard? My calling in Christ, which is your calling in Christ. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And our calling, we are divinely strengthened. And so... Our manner of living ought to reveal not human strength, but supernatural strength. And I don't mean physically. I mean spiritually. Rejoicing and overcoming temptation and loving and being patient supernaturally. So this whole idea of I've had it up to here. (laughs) We think of that differently now. Why? Because we're divinely strengthened. And we are perfectly loved. So live like it. Perfect love cast out. No, not fear. All fear. Perfect love cast out all fear. We living like that? You see how practical just chapter four, verse one is. He's saying, I'm begging you in light of what I've said for three chapters, for me, seven months, in light of what I've said, hey, let's live in a manner worthy of the fact that we're blessed, alive in Christ. And we're ministers who are divinely strengthened and perfectly loved. That's the calling. So, he says, here here, here it is rephrased differently in my words. How does a person conduct themselves when they were formerly dead but are now alive in Christ and blessed with every spiritual blessing, loved perfectly and divinely strengthened. How's a person who's that live? See, that helps me to go, that's what my calling is. How should I live? Can I answer it for you? Look at verse two. He answers it. Here's the first way in which we should live in light of all that reality. He says, With all humility and gentleness. That's how you ought to live. With patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So this is just the first one. 
but first are important. So most important in terms of living according to our calling in Christ is that we would preserve unity and peace as his people. That's consistent. You see, you get the irony of that? For a, for a watching world, the church is easily picked on as a place of division and fighting about silly stuff. And historically, it's been a picture of fighting about important stuff. And it's the very thing he said shouldn't be true in light of who we are. But before we get to unity and peace, I want to think about that word, preserves. What's that tell you? When he said, because I didn't make that word up, that's straight from the text. Did you notice? Preserving unity and the bond of peace. What's preserve imply? Yeah, it, it's already present. In other words, this was helpful for me. Unity is not something we are trying to produce. Unity is something that has already been established and we are preserving. So he's not saying, hey, make something up. He's going, hey, don't mess up what I made. That's a big difference. Don't mess up what I made. And then he demonstrates it in great clarity of how he made it. Look back into the text and you'll see how he goes overboard to show how he has made unity. He says, look again now, verse four. We've looked at the first three verses. Now let's look at the next three. There is one body and one spirit. Just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So he simply establishes you're preserving unity because everything about you is one. So here's what we're going to do. If you're taking notes, I'm going to frustrate you a little bit. We're going to jump past. Point two, we're going to come back to it and answer the question, how? But here is point three, the why we preserve unity. He says, we preserve it because it reflects who we are, who we have been made. Again, remember, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. What is our calling? Our calling is that we have been blessed and loved and alive and strengthened ministers who are one. So it reflects who we are. We are, and I'm going to list these for us really quickly to capture. We are children of one father who are baptized all in Christ and who serve one Lord and have the same spirit. All right. I didn't make those up. That's straight in verses four, five, and six. What I'm helping you, hopefully helping you see is he's just, he's going, let's be one. And then he starts naming all the reasons as he thinks about who we are and who our God is and the oneness there. One God, 
One father, one family, same spirit, all baptized into the same Savior, Jesus Christ. Why are we divided? We've been made one. And we're not just one family with one Father, one Savior, one Lord, one Spirit. We are also one body. That's the picture, one body. And we're one body because we are in one faith. And we share one hope. All right, I know if you're a note taker, I gave you lots of things to, to write down there. Don't, don't get lost in just all the words. Do you get the point? He, he goes overboard so you won't miss it. One, 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 one. So therefore live as one. It's who we are. But we often don't. So let me just name historically what has brought division to the oneness in the body of Christ. Historically, regrettably, race. Regrettably, we've already addressed this in Ephesians chapter two, but for our vast history as a church, there's not been the recognition that all color created in the image of God and all color invited to become one family of faith. It's been a stain in our past. It does not have to be our future. Second, music. Yeah, a little more lighthearted, but the church has gone to war over music. Because you do know drums are not God-glorifying. Now, that's how, in 2021, that, that's almost scratch your head. Really? Come on. In 1990s, urgh, that was the fight in the church. Craziness. But music has, and I still talk to guys now who their worship wars are right now. They're like, oh, our church is divided and we have a traditional service and we have a contemporary service. We've got the service with the drums and one week I wear jeans and the next week I wear a tie. And it's like, ah, oh, seriously, really? So race, music, right now, politics, dividing. Sometimes the church is aligning itself politically more than it's aligning itself with one God, one Jesus, one Savior. All right? <clears throat> hey, I'm not saying we're not involved in politics. I'm saying we have a greater citizenship, and the citizenship is in heaven because of who we are in Christ. Never forget that is our higher calling that demands of us Unity, even in our political differences. Tracking? And of course, what's now most? Vaccinations, mask, pandemic. And everybody knows what's right. For them. Remember that. All right? 
So, those are historically. And we've had our own bouts with that, Christian Family Chapel. Let's get our eyes on one Father, one Lord, one Savior, one body, one faith, the same Spirit, and one hope. And if you missed last week, I hope you go back and listen. To live is Christ. To die is gain. See, if we get off from that, that's when we start getting divided. So, according to your calling, walk in unity. There have been, of course, a jillion petty things that people talk about. Oh, how can you have chairs, pews? You got to have pews in a church. Yeah, there's been all, all sorts of things. I, I remember the first time that I introduced an overhead projector in church and like, eh, I don't know, it's feeling a bit like a classroom. And then the Sunday I put PowerPoint on the back wall. Mm. Can you really sing off the wall praises to God? <laughs> you see how can I just name it? You see how stupid we can be at times? And we just, and, and we can only see the foolishness in the rearview mirror. When we're looking at it, it seems so big. So how do we resolve that? Yeah, we, we look at the person of God. We look at our faith and we go, oh, we got lost in the weeds here. We need to recognize, remember, go back to Ephesians 4, 4, 5, and 6. Those three verses of who our God is. So, uh, that's the vision. It hasn't been our past, our vision for the future, that we would be who we've called to be. One body, one family. How do we do it? It's a great recipe. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So we are diligent to preserve unity and peace. How? With humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance for one another, in love. Those are the four. Let me let you write them down. A walk worthy. Now we're back to point two. If you're trying to, wow, you're messing me up. Point two, a walk worthy preserves unity and peace through first humility. Second, through gentleness, humility, gentleness. Can you remember what was third on the list? Patience. And I'm going to take that expression, showing tolerance in one another in love, make it one word, forbearance. See, tolerance is not a matter of which we're saying, hey, because there's an unhealthy value of tolerance in our current world that says things that are wrong are actually right. That's not what we're saying here. Showing tolerance toward, not truth, toward one another in love, in other words, do I live perfectly? Even though you pay me to do so. Do, do I live perfectly? No, what do I need? I need some forbearance, 
Do you live perfectly? No. Am I saying that my sin is excusable? No, we're saying that we all need grace. We all need to extend to one another an understanding, a willingness to allow us to grow up, to be mature, to be maturing. Because quite frankly, really none of us are mature. We're just at different states of maturing. And so there's the forbearance. Does that make sense? A bearing with one another's weaknesses and warts. That preserves unity. All right, so here they are. Unity and peace are preserved through humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance. Five observations for us. And if you have a sheet, you're probably going to want to flip it over now because I'm going to give you five sentences if you're typing. Here's first. The unity that God intended for the church he also intended for the home. In other words, maybe all along in this passage, you always think the church, the church, the church, the church. And that's appropriate application. It's just not the only application. As God intended there to be unity in the church because of who we are, he intended there to be unity in the home because of who we are. And in fact, a reflection of lack of unity in the church is an extension of the even closer relationship, the unity in the home. If you don't believe that, then go back and recognize how is leadership vetted out, if you will, for in the church. It says the home is the proving ground. The home is the place where we'll see whether someone is qualified to lead in the church because you all know this about ourselves, don't you? The real you comes out most clearly when you're home. Because you can put it on at church. But we've all seen and experienced the person in the car on the way to church and the person who walked in the room at church. You you got it together. And then it came unglued when you got back in the car. Right? The, The home is the place where the truest us is revealed. And so if the church is to be a place of unity, how much more the home? Which, if you're single, I would hope to be married. Please don't marry a person who's not a believer. Not my counsel. That's the admonition of scripture. Don't be unequally yoked. A believer is not to bury an unbeliever. Why? Because there's not a unity here. And in marriage, God intended the two to become one. And that starts with the faith, the common faith. Same father, same spirit, Same savior, same hope. You see what I'm saying? You see how that binds the marriage together? Now you may go, "Uh, we were both unbelievers and I came to Christ. What do I do with that? You type that into Q&A and then I answer it in Q&A and you watch tomorrow. (laughs) But there's there's a real answer for that. But as you're in the time of choosing, if you're single, 
Choose a person. If you're a person of faith, choose a person who has a faith, a growing faith like your growing faith in Christ. It's intended for the home. So everything that I, we going forward, I want you to think not just church, maybe think more powerfully, your home. And if you're married, your marriage. It'd be easier to think church because it's easier to poof, shoot the church. But man, if we start thinking our marriage, ugh, <laughs> it gets personal. I agree. And here I came in with great joy again this morning going, Lord, your word is giving us good truth to help unity in our marriages, in our home, and in our church. So don't be reluctant. Don't be resistant. Receive what he says. Humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance. That will be the secret to unity here and unity in your home. Second observation, humility is first because it's the root source. In the four he list, I don't think it's accidental that humility is listed first because humility will produce gentleness, patience, forbearance. All of the, the next three are, if you will, overflows of humility. Gentleness, patience, forbearance. And when we say humility, what are we talking about? Simply this, thinking rightly about myself. Not thinking too highly. Romans 12 warns, don't think too highly. It's thinking rightly about myself not an overinflated view of self, thinking rightly about myself. That produces gentleness. That, not weakness, but gentleness. Strength, but it's under control. Under control of what? Humility. Patience. You know why it's so hard to be patient? Because patience means this, long suffering. Does that clear it up for you? Because who likes to suffer? None of us. Who likes to long suffer? Really none of us. And so when we are being patient with someone, we're saying, I'm going to long suffer with you. Or not. Where does that come from? Humility. But we're, just think of it this way. When we're impatient, what we're saying is, look, I'm done suffering because of you. Now it's my turn to make you suffer. Isn't that, isn't that real? Isn't that what happens? Just think about when you're impatient. You're like, okay, I'm done. Your turn. I'm going to take it out on you. Because I've taken enough. That's patience, long-suffering. I've described forbearance. It begins by thinking accurately about me. I would suggest this, that humility is the necessary disposition of my heart for then the fruit of the Spirit to be manifested in me of gentleness, of love, of patience, of forbearance. Humility is that disposition of my heart. So therefore, 
understand. This was really, this was uh, an insightful moment for a guy Thursday night. He came up afterwards and he said, I I am deeply challenged because I've always listened. And he wasn't being funny. He said, I've always kind of thought of myself as a humble guy. But anybody around me would tell you I am not gentle, patient, or forbearing. So he rightly said, I'm not sure why I think I'm a humble guy. Because it is the product of that disposition of the heart where there is gentleness, patience, and forbearance. So if humility is the root, it's, it's where the rest come from. Then you ought to ask yourself, these will produce unity and I want unity in my home and my marriage and they're a result of gentleness, patience and forbearance and they're a result of humility. How do I become humble? Because that's a hard question, isn't it? How do I become humble? Maybe you've never asked yourself. How do I become humble? Here's how you grow in humility. Now, that's how you, what was said, by examining myself, that's just going to reveal whether I'm humble or not. How do I grow in humility? I grow in humility by increasing recognition of the grace of God in my life. Where there's a lack of humility, there is what? There's a sense of, no, I'm all that. And you're not, and I don't have time for you. And we don't say those things, but we think them. So how do you grow in humility? You recognize simply this. Everything good in my life, God's grace. God's grace. See, humility is not, if God has made you smart, it is not humble to say, well, I'm not smart. That's actually dishonoring to God. It's not humility to deny the truth. It's humility to recognize where it all came from. The classic example of pride in the Old Testament is Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the, the greatest country on the planet at that time. It says in the book of Daniel, he walks out onto his palace rooftop and he goes, wow, look how great this is. Look at the splendor of that. Well, that was the truth. You know where he went astray? That I have done by the power of my might. And then from heaven, the Lord said, Mm, you're going to regret that one right there. <laughs> really? Seven years, an animal, until you recognize it's great, but not because of you. So how do you cultivate humility in our lives? We simply, everything, every time you look at something that's good in your life, and you think, look what I've done, you go, no, Lord, no, Lord. I repent of that thought. Look what you've done. 
Look how good you've been. Look how gracious you've been. Everything that's good has been undeserved and unearned. It's been grace. See, what's our calling? (laughs) All by grace. And if our calling is 100%, you know, we're alive by grace. We're strengthened by grace. We're loved by grace. You see what I'm saying? We're ministers by grace, not because of our good. We're ministers by grace. Everything in our life is by grace. And if we think everything and really genuinely believe everything is by grace, then there will be no self-credit and humility will be in our heart. And what will come from humility? Gentleness, patience, and forbearance. And what will come from gentleness, patience, and forbearance? Unity. So simply ask yourself, what's the fruit in your marriage or in your home right now? Is it disunity? Is it brokenness? Is it division? Well, you can probably trace it back to lack of gentleness, lack of patience, lack of forbearance. What maybe you haven't been willing to do is trace it back to that that fruit is a root of What's the opposite of humility? Pride. How do I deal with pride? I recognize the foolishness of taking credit for what God has done graciously. So Thursday night, there was a nuclear engineer. Is he smart? I assume so. Who made him smart? God made him smart. Now, he may go, no, no, I worked my tail off in college. I believe that. Who gave you the strength to work your tail off in college? God. See, what happens in our lives is we look at our lives and we think, oh, man, I'm I'm more disciplined. I'm more insightful. According to you or according to the grace of God in your life? We will only preserve unity here and in home, in our home, when there is humility. And that humility comes from it's God's grace, it's God's grace, it's God's grace, it's God's grace that I'm alive, it's God's grace that I am in relationship, it's God's grace that I have a home, it's God's grace that he brought somebody into my life, it's God's grace that he gave me children, it's God's grace that he gave me strength to provide for them, it's 100% God's grace. Anytime you're tempted to put your name on what God has done, repent. Lest you be Nebuchadnezzar. That's how we cultivate humility. Therefore, as we've said, the opposite of humility is pride. And I hope you'll capture that pride because as humility is a root, pride is a root. And root, different root produces different fruit. So what comes out of me when, when there's not humility but pride, what comes out of me? Not gentleness, harshness. What comes out of me? Not patience, but impatience. Not forbearance, but demandingness. I deserve you to treat me this way. 
And where there's a different root and there's different fruit, then there's not unity and peace, there's division and brokenness here and at home. I hope this is helpful to you. I hope you can recognize that there's going to there's going to be opportunity. There's constant opportunity where there's a home. There's constant opportunity for brokenness and division. Right? Where there's people, <laughs> where there's people together, there's an opportunity for brokenness and division to occur. And the remedy is humility. We're so busy trying to, I know I should be more gentle. I know I should be more patient. That is not going to work, friends. You have to go to the root. And it either goes to a root of humility or the opposite, the root of pride. And the issue of pride in my life, friends, we're too casual, too uh, content with pride. My son said to me this week as I was talking through this with him, he said, you know, the problem with this is, Dad, if you told CFC you'd have a problem with stealing, they'd be like, hmm, check the offering. But if you say, ah, I'm wrestling with pride, they go, oh, that's all right, all of us do. See what I just said? We're usually more concerned about the fruit than we are the root. Because really, we just want people to think of us one way, not who we really are. So if you want change in your home, you want change in your life, you got to address the root, not just the fruit. Fifth, any move back towards unity must begin with recognition and repentance of pride. Right? So if... you're not, going to, you're not going to resolve brokenness any other way but recognizing where it came from. And it wasn't the fruit, it was the root. And so to go back, and here's the irony of this. It takes humility to repent. To say, I was wrong. You have a hard time saying you're wrong? Because you know you're right. It's their right. So unwillingness to even admit that we're wrong that keeps us from then moving back towards the unity. Hey, I'm grateful that, that when Jackie and I, my wife, were married 35 years ago, just two weeks ago, when we were married 35 years ago, the Lord made us one. And we've blown it. We haven't preserved what he made one multiple times. But I'm grateful. I'm not trying to produce something. I'm trying to preserve what he did. He made one. So that gives me great hope. I'm not trying to do something. I'm trying to preserve what God has done. And that begins right here. Repenting of pride wherever it comes in my life. And where's humility come from? The grace of God. So bow with me. And I want you to, this might catch you by surprise, but I want you to think of the grace of God in your life. 
Just name. Name every expression of God's grace in your life. That you're alive. That you can walk. That you can hear. That you can think. You see, every detail, recognize the grace of God in your life. That he's been patient with you in your foolishness. How he's protected you in spite of some really stupid things you've done. How he gives you chance and chance and chance, opportunity and opportunity and opportunity. That you can be productive. That you get to help people. See, if you want to cultivate unity, begin by thinking grace, 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 grace. And so, Lord, would you help us in the coming days to think rightly, to always think first thought, God's grace, God's grace. And where you are prone to think, oh, what you did, would you commit Lord, I I repent now and I want to repent then. It is your grace that has made us one. It is your grace that will preserve that unity. It is your grace that will produce humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. Lord, we pray that you would find in our hearts receptive soil. I pray now that as we go back into our relationships, that we would do so with hearts overwhelmed with your great grace in our lives. That it would be to the praise of your glory because it's worthy of our calling. Let's stand and declare this together. Chosen to be
grace doesn't resound more than the times that we are we are displaying humility and gentleness and patience. That's how our Lord is to us. That's the grace that we've been given. So go be encouraged that God is strengthening us to be like he is. And so as we um, interact with people this week, we can be Jesus to people. And he's strengthened us to do that. I'm glad you're here. I hope you have a great rest of the weekend. We'll see you next time.